Hi, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in Hebrews today, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, with a message titled, The Place of Angels. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm not telling you any news when I tell you that Western culture is in a crisis of authority. You know, some years ago, when one very controversial president was elected in the United States, many held signs that read, not my president. Well, they meant to say that regardless of the legal process of electing a president, if that president was not to their liking, they refused to acknowledge his authority over them or the country. Well, more recently, when a new king was installed in the UK, I noticed those same signs coming out again. Not my king. Now, this is not a political broadcast. I make no comment about the merits of any president or king or, or for that matter, any other political leader. That's not my point. My point is that the crisis of authority is becoming so great in many parts of the world that even when a leader is legitimately chosen, there are those who argue that they will not accept any process unless it turns out in their favor. That is, people are saying they will not bow to legitimate authority. Well, that's also true in the Western church. And here I don't mean the authority of a given pastor. I mean the authority of Scripture. I'm telling no secrets when I say we live in a day when what it means to be a human being and what it means to be a man or a woman and what's a legitimate expression of our sexuality and so forth, you know, this is in a period of great upheaval, chaos. In response, there are churches and leaders who have taken issue with Scripture. If Scripture doesn't say what I want it to say, well, they might as well be holding up a sign that says, not my Bible. If it doesn't agree with me, I care nothing for its authority. And even as this is not a study on political leaders, this is also not a study on biblical authority, as, as helpful as that would be. We're studying the book of Hebrews, and today we come to Hebrews 1, 5 to 9, and this is a study of the superiority of Jesus over angels and thus his authority over all things. So let's read our passage, Hebrews 1, 5 to 9. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. You know, I've made the point that the book of Hebrews is written to a group of primarily Jewish Christians who are in danger of the onslaught of persecution. Looking back to their past, they saw that their Jewish kinsmen who had not come to Christ were in some fashion still protected by Rome. Jews had some religious protection, but so it would seem Christians did not. And so some were being tempted to return to their Jewish roots and abandon Christ. And the point of this book is to showcase the superiority of Christ over all things. And so in the first four verses of this book, the writer gives us seven character descriptions of Jesus. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator. He's the sustainer, the radiance of the glory of God, so forth. But now in this next section, the writer takes the time to point out that Jesus is superior to angels. And from a contemporary point of view, that is, reading from our vantage point today, we might scratch our heads. I mean, why angels? 
You know, if Jesus is the exact imprint of the glory of the divine nature, well, of course he's superior to the angels. I mean, why even bother going there? But from the first century Jewish perspective, this is necessary. So let's cheat a little. Let's go ahead to Hebrews 2, 1 to 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, and so forth. Now, we're going to look at that text in a great deal of detail when we get to it, but for now, notice that Hebrews tells us that there's a message that was declared by angels. So, what's that message? Well, in order to understand that, we need to go to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Now, you might remember that chapter. It ends with the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. Stephen is giving a justification for the Christian message to Jewish people who had rejected it. Now, I don't want to replay the entire message, just a small piece of it. It's found in Acts 7, 52 and 53. Stephen is speaking. Here's what he says. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, Paul said much the same thing in Galatians 3.19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Well, it's commonly taught in the New Testament that the law was put into place by angels. So let's ask, how so? Or we might ask, well, now, was the law given by Moses or was it given by angels? Well, the book of Exodus doesn't mention angels in the giving of the law. And yet, at the time of Jesus, most of the rabbis believed that angels played a key role in giving of the law. Well, why? Well, the answer is found in the First Testament. For instance, Deuteronomy 33, 1 and 2, it says, This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. That is, at the giving of the law. Or consider Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So the First Testament is clear after all. When the law was given to Israel, it was attended to by angels. Angels guarded the giving of the law. Angels reinforced it. Angels, as God's messengers, served as God's intermediary. God did deliver his law to Moses through the intermediary of angels. Not just a few. It was a great, massive multitude displaying the splendor of God's power. It must have been incredible. And because of that, any Jew who paid homage to the law and recognized the law for what the law truly was, that is, it was the law of God, they would also, in the very next breath, remember that it was delivered from heaven to earth to the millions of warriors God had sent to superintend it. Yeah, it was glorious. And that brings us back to the book of Hebrews. When the author tells us that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's contrasting the superiority of Jesus and the revelation of the gospel that he brings over the angels and the revelation of the law that they brought at Sinai. See, the preacher of Hebrews is saying, if you found Mount Sinai impressive because of the messengers God sent to declare his law, well then, you need to pause and think of the glory of the sending of the gospel. It wasn't sent by angels, it was sent by a son. Now, we notice when describing Jesus, Hebrews gives us seven descriptors of Jesus. 
But now in declaring Jesus' superiority to the angels, he gives us seven First Testament quotations regarding Christ's superiority. Today we're going to consider just the first five of them. And the first two of those quotations come to us from Psalm 2 and then from 2 Samuel 7. We'll consider those two under one heading, and that heading is that Jesus has received a name that is better and more superior to any name that any angel had ever inherited. Jesus' name is better. His name is superior. His name is above all other names. Let's look at the first quotation, Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Now, in quoting that passage, Hebrews simply says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. So put it in context. Psalm 2, that's one of the great messianic psalms. God has a message in this psalm to his Messiah. Ask of me, says God the Father, to his Messiah, and I will make the nations your inheritance. And then this is breathtaking. The declaration, the Father declares to his Messiah, you are my son. And what's fascinating about that is that this has now become clear from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The understanding that the Messiah was the Son of God, well, that seems to have been understood even before Jesus arrived among the Jewish people. Now, it wasn't Christians that made up that Jesus was the Son of God. It's actually found in the First Testament. But then there's a quote from 2 Samuel 7. This one follows logically. Psalm 2, well, that's a poetic form of what happened in 2 Samuel 7. David has had it in mind to build a temple. And Nathan the prophet comes to David and delivers God's message. First, he promises David that one of his offspring will have an eternal kingdom. And then in 2 Samuel 7, 14, the prophet Nathan says to David, here's God's message. I will be to him, the Messiah, a father. He shall be my son, the Messiah, the one who will rule the world, that one will be called the Son of God. Which angel ever had that said about him? Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants. No angel was ever called a son of God, and, and that might be the end of our discussion, except There's a curious feature in this passage that I've just quoted, and it comes from the Psalm 2 quotation. Now, you might have noticed it, but it said, this day or today I have begotten you. That is, on one given day, the Messiah was begotten as the Son of God. Now, that should lead us to scratch our heads. See, if you go back to Hebrews 1 verse 4, well, that's a passage I mentioned yesterday, but that passage had a puzzling feature about it. 
See, that passage said that Jesus has inherited a name, and that name is Son of God. Again, he inherited it. When? See, I raise that because there are plenty of New Testament passages that declare that Jesus has always eternally been the Son of God. Romans 1 verse 4, Paul says, according to his divine nature, he's the Son of God. As God, he is God the Son. John 1.14 talks of the glory of the only Son from the Father. Colossians 1 teaches us that Jesus as Son is creator of all things. And furthermore, we know that when Jesus was born, he was already the Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God. 1 John 4.14 tells us that the Father sent his Son into the world. 1 John 3 verse 8 speaks about the appearing of the Son of God in the world. And to put a point of explanation on top of all of that, Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So to argue that Jesus at some point in time became the Son of God is simply not what Scripture teaches. So what about this passage? Well, here I think we're helped when we look at other New Testament passages that speak about the same. Let me take you to the preaching of Paul. It's recorded in Acts 13.32-33. Paul says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Notice that according to Paul, he's quoting Psalm 2-7, that the day Jesus was begotten was the day he was raised from the dead. How do we understand that? See, I think the best illustration that I can give is to liken this to the coronation of the British king. A new king becomes the king at the very moment when the old king or the old queen dies. But the actual coronation itself, the day he's declared to be the king, happens sometime later at his coronation before the watching world. And that's an apt description of Jesus. It's not that he became the Son of God at his resurrection. No, no. Jesus was always eternally the Son of God. But the day of his resurrection was like the coronation of a king. When Jesus rose from the dead, an announcement went forth to the demons, to the angels, to the entire children of the race of human beings. This one is the eternal Son of God. This is his coronation. So which angel had been coronated in this way? Did God say to even the mightiest of his angels, you are my son and today I crown you as son in the presence of the watching creation? No, no, God never said that about an angel. So from the first two quotes from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, we learn that Jesus has inherited a name, a better name than the greatest names of the earth. You think, says the writer of Hebrews, that if you abandon Jesus and return to the law, that you've lost something? Yeah, you have. You've abandoned the most excellent thing for something that's vastly inferior. Now, here's the second reason Jesus is superior to angels. Angels are never worshiped. Jesus is. Look again at Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, this is most likely a quote from Psalm 97 verse 7. And what's interesting about that psalm is when we read it from the Hebrew. The Hebrew simply says, worship him, all you gods. See, the word Elohim, gods. And it's not uncommon in the Old Testament. Sometimes it refers to the angels as gods, heavenly beings. So as an aside, that might well explain why it is 
that Moses can say in Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, that the gods that the pagan nations sacrificed to, they were demons. So demons, as you know, are fallen angels, angels that have sinned and rebelled against God. Look, I mentioned this because from a human perspective, to see an angel, unless one understands the one God of the Bible, but an angel will look so powerful, so radiant in splendor, that it's quite understandable that a human being would think that's a God. And that might explain why it is that in a great many polytheistic religions, they come with visions that have been seen of the gods. And that also explains why it is that John, the great apostle himself, almost made that error. In fact, he didn't just make it once, he made it twice. In Revelation 22, 8 and 9 is the second time. It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. See, the sight of the angel was so overwhelming that John was stunned by his splendor, and he wanted to bow down and worship, and he was immediately corrected. It's forbidden to worship angels. But here's the contrast. Angels worship the sun. Again, as before, we might want to move on, but notice also that Jesus is here called the firstborn. It's not a reference to Jesus having been born first. It's a reference to an Old Testament law in which the firstborn has an inheritance superior to everyone else. When Jesus is called the firstborn son, it means all that belongs to the Father belongs to him. So let's review. Jesus is called the son, and for that reason, the name he has is greater than the name of an angel. Second, angels are never worshipped, but the Son is. Indeed, the angels gladly bow the knee and worship the Son with us. Now, here's the third point. Angels don't exercise dominion. They don't rule. The Son does. So let's look at the next quotation from Psalm 104, verse 4. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flame of fire. Angels may appear in human form, but according to this passage, they're winds and flames. They, they don't have flesh and blood as we are, but that matter aside, what this passage shows us is that angels are messengers and ministers. They are, if you will, God's great armed hosts. Sometimes they're, they're simply called the host of heaven. And from the description, we find angels, and they seem to have rank, and they function to carry out orders that are given to them. You know, unlike contemporary descriptions of them, I think, that to encounter an angel would be so overwhelming, it would be very frightening indeed. But they are simply beings that are under command. Now notice the, the next First Testament quote, and this one comes from Psalm 45, 6, and 7. You know, if the fourth quote described the activity of angels, this one, the fifth one from Psalm 45, describes the activity of the Son in contrast. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then it speaks of his kingdom, the realm in which he rules. And then finally, it speaks of the righteousness of his government. But we need to stop here, even though there's so much more we could say. See, the point has been made. The readers of this letter were wondering what would be lost if they deserted Jesus and his gospel and went back to Judaism. And please notice that Hebrews doesn't deny that Judaism is founded on the word of God over and over again. When Hebrews quotes from the First Testament, it does so by assuming it's the Word of God. It's trustworthy. It's without error. It comes from the mouth of God. No words of God are inferior or can be contradicted or are of lesser value. But 
if we pay attention to the First Testament, I mean, if we really pay attention, we would see that it's an unfinished book that's longing for a climax. And more than simply longing for a climax, the First Testament tells us that the climax will come in the form of God's chosen one, the Messiah, who is the Son of God and who will be revealed to the whole world. He is so great, says the First Testament, that the angels will worship him, and indeed, they did so when he was born. He would sit on a throne, not simply carrying out the orders of the Father, but his throne itself would be the throne of authority. So let's be clear. No follower of Jesus discounts the First Testament. Were it not for the First Testament, we would never know the one true God. But let's also be clear. Were it not for the final testament, we would not know the message of salvation. We would not know the glorious Son of God, the one who is worthy of worship. If we neglect him, we neglect everything. See, you can't go back to Judaism. Not now, not ever. Or you can't go back to any other religion or philosophy or any cultural practice. For if you did so, you would desert the thing of ultimate and lasting value. Once we come to Christ, there is nowhere else to go. For if we desert him, we have lost not only him, but we have lost all things. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I think this is fundamental, so I'm gonna ask you to help us understand better. What is the relationship between the first or the Old Testament and the Second Testament, the New Testament? Yeah, I mean, we often say that, um, you know, the Old Testament uh, or the First Testament, I like the words First Testament, that the First Testament sets the, the table, sets the stage. We would not understand who Jesus is, what his sacrifice on the cross actually means, or who are the people of God and what a covenant means. I mean, all these concepts, they come to us from the First Testament. But having said that, I also want to say that the First Testament is an unfinished book. It awaits resolution, and that resolution doesn't come until Christ shows up. And so, um, you know, I would say this, you know, to my Jewish friends. Um, You have a godly book. It is inspired by the Spirit, but it's not finished, and you need to read the completion because until you read the completion of the story, you have not yet understood what is required of you in order to be saved. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Once in a while, we become overwhelmed when we consider the generosity of those who share our heart for Bible teaching. This is one of those times. Earlier this month, we shared about a group of committed partners who pledged a matching donation of up to $100,000 to help us reach our fiscal year-end goal of $325,000. Well, we can't express our appreciation enough for the impact of this pledge. But we're also excited to share that this same group has extended an additional matching pledge amounting $50,000. So if you haven't already, perhaps you'd consider sending a gift today. You can literally double the dollars you choose to give. What a great ministry investment. What a great investment in sharing the truth of God's word. 
Help us finish well and begin a new year of promising ministry. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.